expectations are, and then say, then this is what we need to look at. And if they're not on target, they're in the ballparks far more often than not. I, I, I just am absolutely amazed at, at that. And I also appreciate the weight that sometimes that is upon the shoulders of the medical professionals when the diagnosis is made, and yet the outcome doesn't appear to be one that is positive. I've been there a number of times when people have been told that their condition is terminal or that their treatment is not having the effect that they had hoped for. And that therefore, it was either going to be some level of debilitation or even death that was imminent. And the weight that that is upon the shoulders of the medical professionals and the ones that I have seen have done so with such tremendous clarity and a level of compassion to enable people to process and then to respond in ways that are appropriate. I've been there, but I've never had the weight of delivering the news, and so I, I absolutely uh, admire the fact that they are able to do these things. Now, in our passage this morning, uh, Jesus is continuing the conversation with the Pharisees, other religious leaders, and then other people are, are there and listening in and maybe participating some. And what he is speaking about in this portion of our, our passage is not something that is necessarily very positive. In fact, there's a sense in which you read this and think, this is kind of dark, this is kind of a bummer. This is not one of those uplifting kind of passages that we, that we like uh, and that bring us a level of inspiration. And nevertheless, the words that he speaks here are important, they are profound, and they are pertinent to every one of our lives. And what is intriguing to me here is Jesus, who is sometimes known as the great physician, he is doing essentially what the physicians do that brings me admiration for them. If you look at the passage that we just read, and particularly in verse 24, you read that Jesus says these words that are firm and even rather stern, but they create not only a framework for this text to give us a, an outline uh, and an essence of the subject, uh, but Jesus is doing some things that you would expect a physician to do. Because he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And what Jesus is doing there as the great physician is he is diagnosing the common condition of humanity. He is communicating to us the consequence of that condition. And he is also prescribing the only cure that is possible for our condition, all things that we would see a physician doing. And that's the course of what he is describing here. So first we need to understand what it is that Jesus is saying. It is our common condition. And, and we see it uh, quite blatantly in the passage. In verse 21, Jesus says this. So, I, I, so he said to them again, I'm going away, you will not seek me, and you will die in your sin. In verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sin, for unless you believe in that I am he, you will die in your sins. We see kind of a, a repetition there. Uh, Jesus kind of run on, saying the same thing over and over again. You will die in your sins. Now, one of the things that's always important to remember when we are looking at the scriptures is that when Jesus is repeating himself like this, 
it's not like for most of us who speak and we're trying to figure out, forgot what we were going to say or forgot that we had said something. He's making a very deliberate point. And when he repeats something three times like this, you will die in your sins, that's the point that he's wanting to get across. That's what he wants everybody to hear. That's what he wants people to remember. And in doing this, what he is describing to us is the condition of all humanity. It's common to every one of us. He is saying every one of us experiences and is affected by a condition of sin. And yet we hear that, and there is a sense in which, particularly those who are gathered here, we might say, okay, we know that, that's basic, that's fundamental, but we need to hear what Jesus is saying if he's going to speak to us today in order that we would also gain the benefit of what he wants us to understand from this passage as well. And we need to remind ourselves that sin is not merely breaking a rule or breaking some set of rules. Sin, as the scripture defines it, is a condition. Sin is not simply things that we should avoid doing. It is the condition of our lives that expresses itself in many ways. In the Hebrew language throughout the Old Testament, we see a number of different words that are used for different expressions of sin. The most common one is, is the word hata, which simply means missing the mark. It goes back to the book of Judges where, uh, where we're told that there were some people, some men who were uh, able to take out their stones and sling them and they never miss the target. And so in contrast to that, the idea of sin hata are, is, is the idea of missing the mark of God's bullseye, of God's perfection, God's holiness in any aspect of our lives. And when we look at it that way, we recognize that that is a blanket that covers all of humanity because nobody, nobody, no matter how godly they are, no matter how committed and zealous they may be, would be so foolish enough, if they're in their right mind, to say, I nail it, I hit the bullseye of God's holiness every day, every moment of my life. Any missing, any stray, any not in that red bullseye, it's all considered sin. Some is far out, farther out than others, but anything that is not the bullseye is considered to be sin in, in the Hebrew understanding of that. The question is not whether or not we have a condition of sin. The question is, how does that express itself in our lives? And in some cases, it expresses itself differently than in other cases. In some people, it is expressed visibly in one way. In other people, it's expressed visibly in other ways. And the Hebrew language contains a variety, and I won't go through all of them. We'd be here for quite a while, but I do want to give you a sense of what some of them describe. And, and one is probably not particularly surprising. This word pasha just simply means willful rebellion, stubbornness. and In other words, people who rebel against God. There's another one that just refers to evil. The people just are evil. They do evil things, which is, is part of, of the rebellion against God. There's another Hebrew word that is uh, the word avah, which simply means to stray from the path or to wander off and to stumble. And the imagery here is that of somebody who's on a, perhaps a, a mountain hike. So imagine going on the Appalachian Trail. And there are paths that are clearly marked. And if you stay on the path, then it is significantly safer than if you were to get off of the path. It's been marked. It's been laid out. It's been, uh, been plowed down. And you're far more likely to be able to get from point A to point B if you remain on the path. But if you're familiar with the Appalachian Trail, or particularly in, in the Smoky Mountains where I'm most familiar with it, you may also recognize that while you are on some of those paths, there are other paths that look quite inviting that crisscross the marked path. And they seem wide. They seem well-maintained. They seem quite inviting. 
And yet the reality is they've not been laid out by the Forest Service or by the rangers or any of the trail organizations that maintain the trail. They're made by the elk and the wild boar and the bear and other wildlife that are walking back and forth, crisscrossing, couldn't care less about the trail that's been laid out for others. And because those are rather large animals, they, the, the path can be sometimes wide. And because they're heavy animals, they beat, the thing, beat down the path. And they look every bit as inviting sometimes as the path that is laid out by the park service that will get you from point A to point B. But every year, you read of any number of people who have strayed off of the mark path and taken one of those paths, thinking that it looks inviting, whether they do so believing that they have more capability in the outdoors than they do, or because they naively have just taken the wrong path and they're following it down until it comes to a point that is no longer maintained. In fact, it becomes quite treacherous. And so that's the image that that word talks about in, in, in the scripture that we may not consider to be sin. It's things that are not necessarily evil, and yet, but getting off of the path that God has laid out for us. He has marked it. He's told us if we stay on this path, life goes a whole lot more smoothly. It's not that we won't have any difficulties or any, anything that would be obstacle in our lives. But this is the path to walk in life. And yet we are prone to wander. Sometimes intentionally because something looks inviting. Sometimes unintentionally because we just not notice and we just didn't know better. And we get off of the path that God has laid out and we find out that it becomes treacherous. And we tend to focus on the fact that it's harmful for us, but God calls that sin as well. And we see it in very practical ways. Perhaps one of the most glaring in our, our culture today uh, deals with the way that we look at our, our day-to-day calendars. We are such a busy, busy people. We're also a people committed to recreation. And yet we emphasize the recreation, our need of rest, And we've somehow lost sight of the fact that God made us, knows that we need the rest. And he has said one day in seven is to be set aside from the rest of our labors and resting in his presence. And yet we put so many other things in priority that I know of people who feel when time comes that they need to take rest. And so what they take a rest from is God's worship, God's day, God's church, and God's people. On the face of it, it doesn't seem to be an evil thing. And the people that I know that engage in that certainly are not evil people. There's plenty of things that need to go. I understand. But the fact is, we wonder now why we feel so tired, so worn out, so no focused. We wonder as families when we prioritize uh, recreation over worship, then why our children are not growing up and walking in the faith. They are. They're walking in the faith that is our priority because we've wandered from the path. It's not bad people, not evil people. It's not people that don't love God. But it's an, it is an area that God describes as sin. We have other paths, that words as well, that describe things that are quite common. There's one called, a, one word, akash, which means to twist or to pervert or to distort. And... The biblical example that comes to mind there is in the book of Micah where the prophet describes some of the rulers as those who detest justice and they make crooked things out of those things that are already straight. In other words, they take the things of God that should be relatively simple and they twist them for their own purposes. We are so prone to that, taking the gifts that God has given to us And then we use them in ways that God never intended. And then we end up facing consequences of doing that. We do it in relationships that are meant to build us up, and yet 
there's something in us that sometimes uses the people who are around us. Some knowingly, some not knowingly. I think of things like technology that is a gift through God's common grace and the benefits that come into our lives through having access to information and yet we've used it to make pornography present in your hand 24 hours a day or communication access to things that are not going to do us any good. And God calls that kind of twisting of his truth, of making crooked that which he has made straight, he he calls that sin. And then there's another category that really goes along with all of the other ones. There's a word that's avel, which means folly or, or stupidity. And we see this expressed in in the book of Proverbs, where Solomon writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, is, is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, or fools despise correction. And what he's describing there is a category that refuses to take the information that would lead to the correction to get them back on the path or to stop warping the things that God has given. And it reminds us that our problem is not really an intellectual problem here, it's an emotional. It's not a matter of that we can't process the information, it's a matter of we despise the information that we maybe, in other words, we don't want it. We don't consider it something worthy of our attention. That's an emotional response. Now, perhaps we justify it in our own minds by saying, look, nobody really understands the full circumstances. People don't understand me. They don't know what was really going on. So why should I listen to somebody else if they're going to be just criticizing me and trying to make me do things differently? And that's a tendency that many people have. And the Lord says there's a sin that is in that, but it's a sin that really compounds the other expressions of sin. And it hit home to me very recently when I was told a couple of weeks ago that I had hurt and offended and disappointed some of you. And I wasn't told who or the circumstances, but it was pointed out that it's my own insensitivity and character flaws. And it is a kick in the gut. I was literally nauseous for a couple of days. And if you are one of them, it's not appropriate in the sense of I don't know who. I, I am deeply sorry, and I would love to resolve that. But the issue here is as I received that kick in the gut, as someone was trying to communicate with me, I found my natural instinct reaction to say, enough information already. I got the facts. I don't want any more. Don't be poking your finger into my life and my lack of character. And that's the attitude that is described here by the word avel, is the fool despises that. Now, I think the instinct is very normal. None of us wants to be criticized. Nobody likes it. And yet it's the fool who doesn't, won't receive it. And there's a compound of sin. And so these are just suggestive of the different ways in which Sin is our condition that Jesus is pointing out as saying is our condition. It is very much alive in all of humanity and every one of us. And these may not be your issues, but Jesus said it is the issue, that the sin itself is an issue for every one of us. And so the Bible is showing us overall that, the, that sin takes many forms. Uh, and it's 
just simply as a matter of failing God and straying from God, distrusting God's gifts and his words, or, or despising God's wisdom. Those are just some of the outward ways, and we are very creative in the ways that we may choose to express them. And Jesus is making us understand here. You will die in your sins. This is the condition of humanity. Every person that has been born has this problem. And we now are faced with this and This is what Jesus is saying to us, whether we accept this or not. Because the sad reality is, as clear as this is, not everybody accepts that this is the problem common to humanity or even the problem that is fundamental to our being. In fact, there are some who should be proclaiming this truth, who have been entrusted with pulpits and ministries, who themselves refuse to share this. I remember hearing an interview a couple of years ago, Michael Horton with White Horse Inn was interviewing a a very prominent uh, religious leader. I was going to say Christian, but I'm not so sure about that. But he'd built quite a large church. I'd give his name, but, you know, I don't want to do that. But he had a crystal cathedral. Um, and, uh, And he asked, Horton said, let's start fundamentally. How do you define sin? And the response was, sin is not loving yourself enough. To which Michael Horton rightly said, well, I think we got that backwards. I think sin is loving yourself way too much and not loving God enough. And so that conversation. But there is somebody who is tasked with proclaiming what Jesus has said. And Jesus here saying, look, we have a condition of sin. And they're redefining. And he then speaks a language, which is probably part of his popularity, that affirms what the world says. Because most of the world tells us our fundamental problem is not sin. Our fundamental problem is we lack self-esteem. If somebody would just affirm me based on who I am or what I want to do and just affirm whatever my decisions are, if people would just tell me that I am great, then I'd feel better about myself and then I, I would do better. And, and that's the world's mindset as a whole. And unfortunately, that sometimes finds its way even into the church. But I, I, it was an interesting because I, I ran across uh, an interesting article not too long ago, and I, and I put it aside. It was an article titled, The Trouble with Self-Esteem, by a writer named Lauren Slater, who wrote for a New York Times magazine. And this was, the article itself is uh, probably 15 years old, but uh, what, what Slater did is she was dealing with a topic, and she quotes a researcher in the field of self-esteem. And here's the quote that was in the article from that researcher. The fact is, we've put antisocial men through every self-esteem test we have. And there is no evidence for the old concept that they secretly feel bad about themselves. These men are racist or violent because they do not feel bad enough about themselves. And so this person is writing, who's not a believer, is not suggesting that the problem we have is sin, but he's refuting the whole idea that our biggest fundamental problem is that we lack self-esteem. he's speaking the same language that Jesus is without naming it and and he's reaffirming we have a sin problem another leader in pseudo-Christian circles today has repeatedly explained that he will not talk about sin or hell or anything else that is hard to hear and during an interview on CBS Sunday morning um, Easter special edition on Easter of 2016, here's what this man had to say. Most people are beaten down enough by life. They already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should, failing raising their kids. We can all find our own reasons. 
So I want them to come to our meetings and to be lifted up and to say, you know what, I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward, I'm doing better. And I think that's what motivates people to do better. And I have to confess, there's part of me that I understand that mindset because, frankly, there's a whole lot of other texts that I would rather talk about than the one that we have before us today. I mean, you know, you can read this and you could even say this is a bummer. It's one of the benefits of working your way through verse by verse through a book of the Bible is because you deal with things that you might otherwise choose to avoid. And I would much rather give good news than bad news to people. And I do know, I do know life is hard for many of you, all of us, at some time or another. And so it would be much better to simply give only the good news. But the question I always come back to is, what if our medical doctors did that for us? Look, you know, it's bad enough already. You weren't feeling good or you wouldn't have come to the hospital in the first place. And then, you know, I've tried to find a parking spot in that garage. And, you know, you're probably already frustrated with that. And then we stuck you with all sorts of things and done the tests. We do have the results, but I'm not going to tell you because the day's bad enough already. So just go be happy. I believe the phrase is medical malpractice. I mean, you'd own that hospital, wouldn't you, if somebody, if your doctor actually operated, but I have the condition, I know what's wrong with you, but I'm not going to tell you because it'll make you feel bad. And Jesus doesn't operate that way, and it's not because he's lacking compassion or because he doesn't care. It's because he does. I was struck by these words by um, uh, um, a guy named Ray Ortland. And he says this, a God-given sense of sin is like the lance of the divine surgeon, piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure, letting the infection pour out so that healing can begin. And so as much as we don't want to hear this, and as really as kind of in your face and negative as Jesus is being in this portion of the conversation, it's because he is the great physician and he is revealing to us this is the common condition of humanity. We all have a sin problem. And to compound that, the problem with a doctor not giving the condition is you can't respond. Because if you don't respond, you will experience the consequences of your condition, but sometimes there is a cure for your condition, and it's only with that information. And here, Jesus laying this out, he's calling these people, and through them, everyone, to respond to the reality of the condition. Because there is a consequence that comes when this condition, our condition of sin, goes unchecked, and we've already heard it. The consequence of our condition is death. You will die in your sins. Paul says the same thing in Romans. The wage of sin is death. It's not only the the bad sins, things that were evil, things that harm people, but even the things that would seem relatively innocuous, getting off the path, missing that mark. All of it is sin. It falls short of the holiness of God, and therefore... It brings death. And and that's what Jesus is saying here. If we begin again in verse 21. So Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews asked, will he kill himself? And the reason that they were thinking that is he's going to go someplace they can't come. They were under the impression that suicide, anybody that committed suicide would go to the deepest parts of Hades. And therefore, since they weren't going to be going there, how would they ever find Jesus? Uh, that was a superstition of their time, and it's not with the Christian gospel. If any of you have family members who have committed suicide, we can talk about it another time because it's not the purpose today, but I don't want their stupidity to affect your emotion today. But then Jesus goes on and says, look, 
you're of this world, I'm not from this world, and he's talking about the differences between them and saying, the time is going to come, you're going to look for me, but I'm going to be gone. And you'll want to have more of these chats, and you'll go ahead and ask more of these questions, but it'll be too late, because I won't be able to answer the questions, because I'm going to be gone. And they were thoroughly confused. What Jesus was making very clear is the condition that we have is sin, and there is a consequence, and the consequences he lays out here is death, separation from God. Scriptures go on more and talk about hell. Jesus is not talking about that here today, so I won't go into into that, but wherever you are, God will not be present. That's what Jesus is saying. And that is the consequence to our common condition. And, And then they ask an interesting question, and it's an understandable question. All these things is kind of like going over their head, but at the same time, it's hitting them just enough, and they ask, who are you? And, you know, somebody's making those kinds of statements, it's not a bad question to ask. And not only is it not a bad question, it's an essential question. Because Jesus reminds us in this passage that the only cure that we have is wrapped up in him personally. Now, his initial response to them is, I am who I've been trying to tell you from the very beginning which wasn't helpful because they hadn't paid attention yet anyway, but Jesus is continuing to not only answer their questions, but root his answers in the ministry that he'd had the entirety of his life and the prophecies of the Old Old Testament scripture. And yet, John tells us they, they didn't get it. And Jesus, knowing they didn't get it, gives us a more clear picture that there is a cure for our condition. And he says it in verse 24. Unless you believe, you will die in your sins. But we flip that. If you believe, you will have life. The question is, what is it we're to believe? And Jesus says, if you believe that I am he. And so there are some things that he says in this passage that we are to believe about Jesus if we are to have the life that he's promising, if we are to experience the remedy of the condition that we have. And the first one is to believe that he is the promised Messiah. If you believe that I am he. The second thing we are to believe that certainly is what the Jewish listeners would have heard If you believe that I am, and Jesus is declaring himself to be God who is standing there before them. So Jesus is not only the Messiah, but Jesus is God who has come and is in the flesh. Both of those are essential that we are to believe in him. And yet they still were not getting it. And so Jesus gives them some other clue that is vitally important and I believe to be the highlight of this particular passage. And we see it in verse 28. So Jesus says to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he gives to them an imagery here of lifting up the Son of Man. And this is the second time out of three that John uses this imagery in his gospel. And the initial response seems to be, well, when we praise him, when we exalt him. And there certainly is some truth to that. In other words, when we worship him. But the problem is they're not going to worship him and they shouldn't worship him unless they're convinced that he is who he says he is anyway. But there's something significant in the imagery that he's telling them. And to lift it up, it means more than just to worship him and to exalt him. And so I'm going to back up into John chapter 3. 
conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And in that, in verse 14, John records this part of the conversation with Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so Jesus is saying that when you see the Son of Man lifted up, then you will believe He's relating it to what John has already introduced, that Jesus has already has spoken to one of the guys who was probably there that day, Nicodemus. And he is connecting that to something that happened in the history of Israel. So if you will turn with me now to Numbers chapter 21, if you're inclined, you can, if not, you can listen. But this is what he is referring to. Well, Israel had been delivered from Egypt, and now they were wandering in the wilderness. Numbers 21, I'll begin my reading in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there, were, there, is no, there is no food and there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And so they're complaining about God, and they don't like God's provision. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent, and he would live. It's an incredible story and an incredible picture here, but in some ways it also is sort of perplexing, perhaps a little bit confusing. The actual events are simple enough. People were in sin as part of the consequence of their sin. God brought a judgment. He sent uh, the serpents, and the serpents were poisonous. You get bit, you die. That part's not hard. See enough of your neighbors die. You realize the snakes are still running around. You become self-reflective um, about uh, your own attitude in life, and they repented, and they uh, cried out for mercy. And God, in his grace, heard Moses' prayer, and he gave them the instruction to take a symbol of a serpent and stick it on a pole and then raise the pole up, lift up that pole. The mechanics of the story are not particularly difficult, but what is odd is he's lifting up the symbol of the thing that is afflicting them in the first place, right? I mean, that seems weird. I mean, why would you lift something up and kind of exalt that which is causing you harm? And then to make matters worse is the serpent is represented in the scripture as that that is evil. I mean, from the very beginning, the serpent tempted and the serpent, and the serpent is, the, is, is representative of all evil. So why would God say, put this symbol of evil up on a pole, and then when you've been afflicted, look at that, and then you will find that you're healed. Well, it was part of God's grace in the mechanic and also to point forward to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is identifying himself when he's saying, when the Son of Man is lifted up, people will look, people will believe, and they will be healed. But it still may be confusing to some because, you know, the serpent is 
represents sin. Jesus is God in the flesh. Except that on the cross, we are told that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And on that cross, when Jesus was lifted up, in a sense, as God is looking at that, he represented sin. And God poured out all of his wrath that sin deserved, that we deserve, upon Jesus Christ. And yet when we look to that pole, we look to the one who was lifted up, who became sin on our behalf, and we believe in the fact that he did that for us, we are forgiven. We are set free. We are healed. This is the remedy of our condition that God has prescribed. And Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, then you'll know. And Jesus is saying, look, you need to believe that I am the Messiah, I am God, and that my death is God's prescription for you. We also need to recognize that the word believe, I'm not going to go into detail, I did it last week. The word believe is not just an intellectual acknowledgement, say, okay, check, 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 I believe these things. There is a quality of belief that we see throughout the scriptures that also includes the idea of following walking with Jesus, connecting with Jesus, obeying Jesus, walking in his commands. That's the the whole following. And we need to recognize that the remedy for our condition comes not simply by intellectual understanding, because these guys knew everything. And the scriptures tell us that even the demons believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is, is God who's come in the flesh, that Jesus was lifted up on behalf of us, but they shudder. It doesn't do them any good. There's a quality of our faith that connects us to Jesus. I'm going to wrap up with this. I remember hearing the story uh, sometime back about uh, a man named Dr. Gordon Alice. And Dr. Alice was a noted chemist and pharmacologist, and he's widely considered to be the, the pioneer of the use of insulin to treat diabetes. So through his chemistry and through his, uh, the medicines that he made, he came to that discovery, and he was the one who began the treatment of diabetes so that people could live with it and, and to um, um, and minimize the effects of diabetes. And yet in the tragic irony of his life is that Dr. Alice died from complications of diabetes. So the people that were close to him had to come to one of two conclusions. One is either he didn't know that he had the condition, or two, aware of his condition, he didn't apply the only remedy that would have saved his life. In a very real sense, Jesus is coming before us today, and we can know everything there is to know about Jesus, but unless we are believing in him, resting in him, walking with him, believing in a faith that connects us to him, And we won't do that if we're not aware of the condition that we have. Those two things together. We receive the benefits that Jesus is prescribing here. See, the tragic reality that we all understand is this. Every one of us is going to die at some point or another. But the question is, Jesus is posing it before us today is this. Will you die in your sins? Or will you die in your Savior?